The purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some of your uh, Bibles may read the revelation of St. John the Divine. Well, it is not the revelation of St. John the Divine. It's a revealing of Jesus Christ. The purpose is to give hope to all believers, especially those who have suffered for their faith, such as Abraham and other believers are tonight in Afghanistan and North Korea and other places, by proclaiming Christ's final victory over evil and the reality of eternal life with him. Now, I've written all this in your notes. You'll find, uh, as soon as you get your notes, you'll find that right up in the front. Um, so, uh, three things that are important here to remember. Jesus Christ is coming again. That is going to be one of the key three points as we go through the book of Revelation. Number two, evil will be judged. And number three, the dead will be raised to eternal life or eternal destruction. Now, the author of this uh, book is the Apostle John, and John is the only one of Jesus' original 12 disciples who was not killed for his faith. He was not martyred. Uh, I wish time would permit, uh, but it's a fascinating study to go through what happened to each one of the original 12 disciples. Uh, incredible stories, incredible uh, acts of, of boldness as they gave their life for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most people would not give their life for a lie. They knew this would be true. They gave their lives, every one of them except John the Baptist, uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. John also wrote the gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And the gospel of John was written that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the gospel of John. 1, 2, and 3 John, and this is all in your notes that you have. Did everybody get the notes? Okay, wait, one more over here, Robin. Thank you. Oh, we're out of notes. Can you share then? We'll, we're running some more right now. So, uh, uh, 1, 2, and 3 John were written that we might know we have eternal life, uh, John 5, 13. So, John wrote this gospel that we might believe. His epistles that we might be sure and the book of Revelation that we might be ready. Believe, be sure, and be ready. John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Believe, be sure, and be ready. Now, in the year 66, and in your notes, I did not put A.D., I just put the year, because almost everything we're talking about is A.D. So in the year 66, a group of very patriotic Jews called the Zealots led an uprising against Roman rule. Uh, they were the Marines of their day. Uh, when I think of Marines, I think of Randy Stevens here. Uh, Randy, raise your hand right there, would you? Please, Randy. Randy is a, a decorated former Marine Corps sergeant. Uh, he served with honor, with distinction, and then he went on to serve about 20 years as a missionary pilot in Africa for MAF, Missionary Aviation Fellowship. 
and he is just, he's just committed. And these zealots, they were committed to the restoration of Israel, to the overthrown of the Roman government. Uh, they successfully drove the Roman army out of Jerusalem, and uh, Emperor Nero sent uh, a guy by the name of Vespasian and his son Titus to quell the revolt. You've heard a lot about Nero. And Vespasian conquered Galilee in the year 67. Galilee is around the Sea of Galilee. It's the area that we'll be spending a good portion of our time on our upcoming study tour of Israel. We're going there during the most beautiful time of the year. It's spring. The flowers are blazing. It's where uh, Jesus gave his sermon, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's where Jesus did most of his ministry. So he conquered Galilee in 67, and in 68, he marched south down toward Jerusalem, but he withdrew to Caesarea after learning that Nero committed suicide on June 9th. So once again, I've written all these notes down for you, so you can just highlight, make notes, whatever you want. He proclaimed himself to be emperor in 69, and he turned the war over to his son, Titus. So Titus was young. He wanted to establish himself in history as a mighty warrior. He laid siege against Jerusalem for 143 days. Life was tough. Jerusalem was surrounded. Food was of short supply. Water the underground secret water supply going from the old city of Jerusalem down to the river outside the city gates. If you come with us to Jerusalem, we're going to retrace the steps of David and his mighty men who came up that same secret tunnel, popped up in the middle of, of Jerusalem, and conquered the occupants of his day. But they, this 143-day siege was just tough. And uh, finally, they broke the walls down. They desecrated the, the temple. You remember that. They slaughtered a pig on the altar. And, of course, most of you know that uh, a pig is the most vile, unclean animal to the Jews. And the conquest was completed on September 2nd, the year 70. This was a direct fulfillment of prophecy Jesus made to his disciples that before his crucifixion, the temple of Jerusalem would be completely destroyed so that not one stone would be left standing on another. And when Titus and his boys went into the temple, they saw the gold, remember back in Solomon's day and so forth, uh, the uh, implements of, of temple worship were there, and, uh, and they wanted to get the gold, but since the temple had been burned, the gold had melted and filtered down through the cracks into the rocks, and so they threw the rocks aside looking for that gold that made its way down in between the rocks. So literally, that prophecy was fulfilled exactly as Jesus had, had uh, prophesied uh, earlier. Um, so after the fall of uh, Jerusalem in, in, uh, in 70, AD 70, the remaining Jewish soldiers, their wives, their families, they made their way uh, to the desert, uh, not too far from the Dead Sea. It's a very barren area, dry area, up into a mountain called Masada. Uh, and uh, over 960 people took up residence in Masada. It, uh, it's amazing. For those of you coming with us to Israel, we're gonna take a cable car up to the top of Masada. It's one of only two 
sites that we're going to visit that are not actual biblical sites. They developed a water system there. They developed gardening. They developed hydroponics. And even to this day, there are devout Orthodox Jews that are copying the Talmud, copying the Torah, copying the Mishnah by hand with the same exact type of quill, uh, feather quill pen that the scribes used in the Old Testament days. They are uh, just incredible to watch them at work. You can watch them at work following the exact same rabbinical standards that they did in those days. Well, they uh, repelled the, arm, the Roman army for three years. They built a fortress around the top of this, this uh, site of Masada, uh, which uh, was just incredible in and of itself. But the Roman army, actually not the army, but the slaves that they had built this huge ramp coming up from down at the bottom of this cliff, this mountain that was a natural fortress, building this ramp, going up, 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 just using earth, using stones. They could see over the course of three years, they were getting closer and closer and closer. Finally, in, in the year 73, as the Roman army uh, got to right, that the ramp was finished and they started laying siege on the city itself, the Jews knew that they could no longer fight off the enemy. And so as the fortress burned around them, they drew straws amongst the leaders, just among the men. And uh, the short story is that the, that the leaders of each family, the fathers, the husbands of each family, would take the lives by their own hands of their wives and their children. And then the leaders, by drawing straws, would would take the lives of, of one another willingly. They committed suicide. And then the last two men, one would take the life of the other and the other would commit suicide. Uh, there's, been, there's a wonderful book entitled Masada. You can read about this. There's a movie which isn't so great, but it has some truth to it also called Masada. And to this day, the Israeli Defense Forces, the Israeli Army, upon graduation from officer's school, they take their officers up to Masada. It's very moving. The Israeli flag is flying, and they sing uh, the national anthem, and then they all say in Hebrew, never again, never again. And every Jew knows about Masada, and they trust God, and they are willing to fight to the end for the land that God gave them which we'll discuss uh, in more detail a little bit later on. So Domitian, uh, he became Caesar after his older brother Titus died at the ripe old age of 42 uh, in the year of 81. And then Domitian, um, at the age of 21, he, he declared himself to be Lord and God and demanded to be worshiped. He did bizarre things. He would ride through the gardens in a chariot naked. Uh, he would have the heads of of the Jews and the Christians, uh, the, the people that were impaled, uh, their heads dunked in oil, and they would be torches as he'd ride, ride through his royal guards. It just he was, he was crazy. He was demon possessed. Uh, those refusing to acknowledge his deity, they were persecuted, uh, and this included all classes of Christians. Some Christians were Roman citizens; others were non-citizens. Uh, male and female, some were free, others were slave. Uh, he persecuted all of them. 
And then this was during this time that John, who had been living in Ephesus, and we're going to get back to that later on, was exiled to the island of Patmos uh, for preaching the word of God and speaking about Jesus, Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Now, in the Roman Empire, prisoners were commonly uh, exiled to these islands. If you've seen the movie Papillon, if any of you have seen that movie, it's a pretty good representation. They were left to fend for themselves. They were given very little in the, uh, assistance in, in food or, or clothing or other supplies. It was rough, it was rugged, uh, it was a small island, and uh, Patmos was a volcanic island. Uh, I've lived a good portion of my adult life on islands. Uh, I was a missionary on a volcanic island in the most primitive country in the world called Vanuatu, and every once in a while, uh, there would be earthquakes, they're pretty common, and uh, on a neighboring island about every hour and a half uh, on the island of Tana, the volcano erupts, shoots up lava and boulders the size of, as big as the size of a small car and smaller, straight up into the air and comes back down. And that's been going on for hundreds of years. And it just keeps you know, about every hour and a half, boom. And so there's a lot of ash around, and that's it's not a real great place to live, but that's where John was living. 10 miles long, 6 miles wide, 37 miles off the uh, Mediterranean coast, about 50 miles from the, from the city of Ephesus. And there in the year 95, John received four visions from the Lord described in the book of Revelation. You see those in your notes. Uh, Revelation chapter 1 uh, through 3 uh, was the first vision. The second vision, Revelation chapter 4 through 16, the third vision, Revelation 17 through 21, and the fourth vision, Revelation 21 and 22. Um, now Domitian, back in his palace grounds, he became so, uh, his behavior became so bizarre that just about everybody wanted to see him dead, including his wife. And there were various uh, attempts to take his life, to uh, poison him, and this and that. Finally, he was assassinated on September 18th in the year 96 at the age of 44. So he was replaced by the Caesar Nerva, who uh, then recalled almost all these prisoners, uh, including John in the year 96, and John returned back home about 50 miles away back to Ephesus. Now, in the first vision, the Son of God sends letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. Turkey has been in the news a lot. We're going to be talking about Turkey, current events going on in Turkey, the current president in Turkey, the role of Turkey in the end times. But uh, the seven churches that we're going to talk about next week, introduced tonight, and then go into depth next week, they are in Turkey. And uh, these letters revealed the, the blessings that would continue to them if they were faithful and the judgments that would come to them if they were not faithful. These are seven literal churches. You can go and visit the church site today. We'll talk about that later on. The rest of the book um, uh, talks about the visions number two, three, or four, and it gives the details of these blessings and judgment. So let's talk about the outline of Revelation. We're still in the introduction of Revelation. The outline of Revelation, well, it's the only book in the entire Bible with its own outline penned by God. And that's the outline that we are following. Chapter 1, which I hope to finish tonight, chapter 1, is what you have seen. 
the reality of the resurrected Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 19 says, write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. So, what you have seen, the seven churches, that's chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3, the second part of the three-part outline in Revelation, the things that are happening now, when John wrote this message under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus gives these seven messages to the seven churches. We'll talk about what Jesus looked like when he appeared to John tonight. And this, interestingly enough, not only corresponds with the exact route that the mailman would take, or the mail carrier, excuse me, whether it be male or female, as a mail carrier would go from church to church to church, seven churches around Turkey, which we'll talk about, but it also corresponds perfectly with history, the seven stages of the church in history. And that's what we'll do a brief introduction tonight, and then we'll go in depth next week. We'll cover that second part, chapters two and three. So by the end of next week, we will have finished part one of the outline, part two of the outline, and then we'll have part three, which we'll spend the rest of the time on, and those are the things to come. So chapters four through 22 uh, talk about the things that will happen. Things that will happen, they could happen as early as tonight. May I give you a spoiler alert? Can you hear me okay? Can I give you a spoiler alert? Every prophecy that, according to the Bible, that must be fulfilled before Jesus Christ calls us to meet him in the air has already been fulfilled. Now, you're going to be getting hundreds of Bible verses, but this is a little spoiler alert in case you never come back. Say, oh, I don't want to go back to that class again. <laughs> every prophecy, every single one. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. And we're going to see that in history as well. So chapters 4 and 5, the church is raptured. This is part, part, part 3 now, the things that will happen. The church is raptured and taken to heaven for a seven-year honeymoon with our Lord. We're going to be talking about that tonight. Chapters 6 through 19, the tribulation occurs on earth as God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. That's not us. We're having a honeymoon with our bridegroom in a place that he is preparing for us right now. He's not done, but he could be done by 10 o'clock tonight. We don't know, but we know that we're closer now than we've ever been before. Chapters 20, the millennium, a 1,000-year uh, period of time. Uh, it's a period of grace, prosperity on earth as our Lord returns to earth, not just we meet him in the air, but we come down to this earth, the millennium, where there's no more sickness, no more masks, no more medical appointments, no more politics, no more Republicans, no more Democrats, no more CNN, no more Fox News. It's going to be a wonderful place. It's going to be great. The lion will lay down with the lamb. Babies will play the snakes. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about, well, my, my, my fawn boxer, wherever the fawn boxer is, right there sleeping soundly. That's all right. Most people sleep when I teach, so I understand. <laughs> will my fawn boxer be in heaven? We're going to talk about that. The Bible does talk about that. Animals in heaven. We're going to talk about that. During the millennium, it's going to be a wonderful time. At the end of the millennium, 
We're going to read about how Satan is loose. There's going to be a final rebellion. There's going to be not just the Third World War, but the Fourth World War. We're going to be reading about the, that, that uh, as we study chapter 20 and then chapters 21 and 22. We're going to be talking a whole lot more about heaven than I did two weeks ago, Sunday morning here at the Orchard. We left out a lot just because of time constraints, and I went over time as it was. So we're going to be talking a lot more about heaven, including will my pets, will my pet, Fawn Boxer, What's his name? Delora. Delora? Glora. Glory. Glory. I love that. Perfect. Will glory be in glory? Yes. Glory will be. <laughs> so you're, you're good, glory. You woke up. I like that. There's glory. Do you see glory? There's glory. <laughs> so let's turn to our key verse tonight. Key verse. The key verse in Revelation, if you don't come back, if this is the only verse that you learn, and I've written out all these verses for you, I'm going to type out every single verse in the entire book of Revelation for you and a bunch of other verses as well. You'll have hundreds of references, but if, there, if there's only one verse to remember, this is it. Verse 3, chapter 1. God blesses the one who reads the word of this prophecy to the church, and he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. Now, the Greek word translated reads doesn't mean read silently, read to yourself. It means read out loud. And I loved when I was in second grade to read out loud, to talk out loud, to act out loud. And so I spent more than one day in the principal's office. But uh, here we're encouraged to read out loud. The Greek word means literally to read out loud. There's power in the spoken word. The Bible says that that, that Jesus spoke into existence, the universe. Jesus spoke. Jesus is God, 100% God. Jesus spoke into existence, the universe. The Bible talks about the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible tells, says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with us, and the Word was us. On and on it goes. And so I want to encourage you to read the Bible out loud. Uh, Maybe you have done this in times of stress. Maybe you've cried before the Lord, quoting a verse out loud. I remember years ago, uh, Randy and I didn't serve together in Vietnam, but we did serve together in uh, the Marine Corps. And I was in Vietnam in 1967 and 1968. Um, uh, and I can remember one particular night, not uh, the, the big Tet Offensive, for those of you that are old enough to remember that, had taken place. We were overrun. I, my job was to fire a flamethrower, um, and uh, the flamethrower had been blown up by a hand grenade, and, and, uh, but, but we were fine. Uh, and, uh, and so all, we, all I had was my, my 45 pistol, my sidearm, and a few grenades. And one other man was in the foxhole with me. His name was Paul Saxman. And Paul began it. And uh, during a lull in the fighting, in the middle of the night, I don't know what time, but middle of the night sometime, he just quietly started saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It was a quavering voice. It was a voice from a very frightened young man, Paul Saxman, 19 years old. And then after the second verse, the other guy in the foxhole with him, David Corson, even more frightened, and his voice even more shaky, joined with him as we went through citing out loud, quietly, 
but out loud the entire 23rd Psalm. We both believed that night that we would not make it until sunup. Uh, there's power in quoting the Bible out loud. The Bible speaks about this. When we read the Bible, oftentimes we'll kind of skip over some of those verses that aren't our favorite verses, and we'll maybe dwell on our verses that have been highlighted or underlined or starred or happy faces or whatever you do in your Bible. By the way, write in your Bible. It's just ink and paper. There's nothing holy about that ink and paper, but there is a, it's totally holy because it's the Word of God, but you can write in it. A well-worn Bible is a good Bible. Write in it, circle it, underline it, whatever you want. But when you read it out loud, you'll read those verses that you may not have normally read, and you will be blessed. Well, how do we interpret the book of Revelation? Am I going too fast? Okay, are you with me? The notes are here. How do we interpret the book of Revelation? Well, there's various theological views, which you can take entire courses in seminary on. We're going to just highlight the words uh, but not spend a lot of time on those tonight. One is the preterist view. The preterist view basically is that it states this, that John is writing to encourage Christians in his own day who are experiencing persecution from the Roman Empire. We talked a little bit about that, how the emperor would ride around with, with uh, the bodies of the, the Christians being used as human torches and the, the, the Christians being fed to the lions. That was all very, very true. If you come with us to Israel, you'll go to those Colosseums, you'll see these places. Um, so that's the preterist view. Life was tough. And those, the people that embraced this view said, it's just for those first century Christians. The second view is the futurist view. And except for the first three chapters, as we've already talked about tonight, John is describing things that will occur at the end of history. The futurist view. The, uh, historist, the historicist view is that the book of Revelation is a pre presentation of history from John's day until the second coming of Christ and beyond. Um, so uh, that's the historist, historicist view. The idealist view is that the book of Revelation is a symbolic rebel, uh, representation of a continual struggle between good and evil, and it doesn't really refer, uh, refer to any particular historical event. Be careful of this. Don't try to read too much into this. It's, Revelation is not that complicated. We make it complicated by trying to read too much into it. Just take it at face value. Be aware of allegories. There are a lot of spiritual people here in the Roaring Fork Valley. Uh, Robin and I moved here almost exactly two years ago today. Almost exactly two years ago today. And we found, after living in Maui for 20 years, Maui, Hawaii, we found a lot of similarities among the people of the Roaring Fork Valley and the people in Maui, Hawaii very spiritual, a lot of crystals, and a lot of, uh, of uh, spiritualism, shall I say. Very spiritual, very religious. Religion can be defined as our attempt to reach God, but it's never good enough, whether you're Buddhist or Hare Krishna or Muslim or whatever. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is a relationship. Christianity is God reaching down to man. Big difference there. So uh, beware of allegories. Um, another word that we're going to use uh, is uh, premillennialism, pre pre postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Premillennialism um, is, uh, is, is, 
is a part of eschatology, and eschatology is the study of future events, which is what we're going to be doing in Revelation, uh, and it's the literal interpretation of prophecy. Uh, Premillennial theologians and people that are like most of us, but maybe not all of us, uh, they, uh, they teach that there will be a series of key events that will occur before the millennial rule of, reign, rule of Christ here on earth. The thousand years that he is ruling and reigning. That's what, what millennial means, from the Latin word thousand. Uh, they include the rapture of the church, a seven-year time period called the tribulation, and then the return of Christ to establish a thousand-year rule here on earth. Uh, most evangelicals embrace premillennialism. I do, and I will tell you the reasons why tonight. But that is not the basis of our salvation. There are wonderful Christian men and women who embrace postmillennialism or amillennialism. And that's okay, because we find common ground at the foot of the cross. And it's through the blood of Jesus that we're saved, not because we're premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial. Uh, Postmillennialists uh, believe that the church will be triumphant as a result of the church Christianizing the world. In other words, as a result of our missionary efforts, our evangelization. And when the world gets good enough through our efforts, they believe that Christ will return and uh, then usher in uh, a, new, a new age. Um, and there are some good, wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ, evangelical Christians, that embrace post-millennialism. Not too many embrace amillennialism. Amillennialism teaches, uh, well, let's take a look at the, the meaning amillennial. Millennial means thousand year. We're talking about that later on. A, when you have this word in, in Latin or in Greek in front of it, means not. So it means there's no future millennial earthly rule of Christ sitting on the throne of David. And uh, it's very allegorical. Uh, it's a non-literal uh, approach to prophecy. And the events mentioned in the book of Revelation are being played out presently in this church age. And they believe that, um, that uh, eventually everything's just going to pan out on the end. Not too many uh, people embrace that. It's not uh, real popular. Now, according to amillennial beliefs, Christ will one day, though, return, not to establish a millennial role, but to just usher in an eternal state, heaven will be here on earth. So enough of that. Another word that we will be using that is not found in the scripture is, is a rapture. It's a Latin word, uh, but we don't find it in the Greek or in the Hebrew, uh, and it means a catching up, and that refers to the church, us, being caught up to meet our Lord in the air. Now, the pre-tribulation view states that Christ will come in fulfillment of his own promise. We talked about that. We will some more in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. That is before the tribulation happens, before the seven-year period of plagues here on the earth. Pre-tribulation. We will be caught up to meet our Lord before, sorry the expression, but all hell breaks loose here on planet earth. The mid-tribulation view takes the 1260 days uh, and then states after Daniel's 1260 days, and we'll get to that, Jesus will come back in the middle of the tribulation when things are bad, but not as bad as they're going to be. That will make sense as we go through it later on. 
Christ will come back in the middle of the tribulation, Revelation chapter 11. The post-tribulation view is that Christ will come at the end of the tribulation, which means that the church, that's you and I, the church is the bride of, G, of, of, of Christ, Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, that we will go through the tribulation and we'll be raptured before the second coming of Jesus Christ. If this is true, then you better stock up on a lot of supplies uh, because tough times are coming. Now, regardless of your own personal position, and there are Christians that embrace all three of these positions, that is not, doesn't have anything to do bearing upon your salvation. Our salvation is the belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when he comes back, he's going to come back. His timing is perfect. So we can try to figure these things out, but let's not be guilty of looking for the Antichrist, looking for the mark of the beast, looking for 666, looking for this, looking for that. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. His timing is perfect. Now, I said that I would defend my position on premillennialism. We're going to go through that very quickly tonight. Number one, uh, I believe that the pre-tribulation view uh, most conforms to Scripture because uh, the anger that should have been poured out on us was absorbed by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And I've printed up there 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That's why Jesus was abandoned even by his Father when Jesus uttered those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus was forsaken for a short period of time, even by his own father. Um, number two, Jesus told us to pray that we would be raptured before the tribulation. And I've printed up to there Luke chapter 21, verse 36. So how can we be strong enough to stand before our Lord? Only by, by one way, not because of what we do, not because we're a member of this church or that church or this political party or that political party. No. Only one way because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Number three, Jesus promised to deliver us. And I printed up there, Revelation 3.10. He has promised to deliver us. He said, because you have my command to preserve, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. We don't belong to this world. We are citizens of heaven. I am coming soon. Uh, and then number four, the Bible says that God will not pour out his anger on us. That's speaking of believers. Uh, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5, God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us. And you can read the rest, verse 11, so encourage each other. Build each other up, just as you are already doing. Isn't it wonderful that we can encourage each other that Jesus is coming soon? He could come back tonight rather than, well, you better get ready. The seven trumpet judgment, the seven bile judgments, the seven bowl judgments, uh, they're all coming. Earth is going to burn. There are going to be wars. People are going to die. Look out. You better get ready. No, the Bible says we are to encourage one another with this promise. Number five, the doctrine is a comforting one. The belief that the rapture uh, happens after or in the middle of the tribulation, that's uh, mid-tribulation or post-tribulation is not comforting because it means that we're going to be going through uh, at least half, if not all, of the uh, judgments that are going to take place here on earth. And I printed up 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 there for you. 
Number six, uh, the rapture before the tribulation is illustrated in Genesis 19, where angels delivered Lot and his family before the destruction of Sodom. If you come to it with us to Israel, you're going to see a pillar of salt, literally a pillar of salt, and that's called Lot's wife. Now, whether or not that's Lot's wife, I, I kind of doubt it, <laughs> but it's called Lot's wife. And you remember what happened? Remember, where did she look? She looked back at Sodom. Oh, my lovely home. I just got my new countertops installed and, and all the rest. And she looked back and boom, she turned into a pillar of salt. Um, so we're not going to have to be looking back at these things. Um, it's, it's illustrated that we're going to be delivered from the destruction of this earth. Uh, number seven, uh, the rapture before the tribulation is illustrated in Enoch, who was taken up to heaven uh, prior to the flood. You remember Enoch lived for 365 years, and, and, uh, and, and then he walked with God, and then he just kind of kept walking with God, and I kind of picture this celestial escalator. I know it's not very accurate, but I just picture him walking, walking along, and all of a sudden he just kind of started walking up, 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 up to heaven. He didn't die. I love it. And uh, so he was saved before the destruction of the world. Are you with me on that? Before the flood, before that happened. Number eight, the pre-tribulation uh, makes sense historically and scripturally. Um, oh my goodness. Uh, we have, oh my goodness, we've got to hurry. <laughs> um, some of you may remember the, the classic illustration of the traditional Jewish wedding. Uh, every time we go to Israel, we see at least one wedding taking place in winding through the streets of old Jerusalem. It is so cool. There is such happiness. The, you know, the Jewish clarinets, the cymbals, the sounds. It's just so Jewish. Well, it better be. We're in Jerusalem. <laughs> and, 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 and you remember that the couple was betrothed when they were young children. Usually this was an agreement made between the parents, particularly between the fathers of the bride and the groom. When they were just young children, they were not interested. They had no interest in the opposite gender at all. Yuck, girl, yuck, get away from me. But, but they were betrothed by the parents. And then uh, later on, uh, they became uh, engaged and... Um, then the, then the wedding ceremony took place. But during this time, when the boy was old enough, he would begin building a room, uh, a room addition onto his father's house. The boy did not know, now a young man, he did not know the time of the wedding. The bride didn't know the time of the wedding, but they knew the season, and we'll talk about it later on. It was probably in, most likely in April, the springtime, the crops, and then all, all of the rest. They had a rough idea, but they didn't know the day, they didn't know the hour. Only the father of the groom knew. Who is our groom? Jesus. We are the bride. The Bible says only the father knows. So he is building this room addition. When the father determined that the room addition had been finished and it was good for a nice little honeymoon suite, the father said to the young man, go, you may now get your bride. And through the streets of Jerusalem they would go drums, cymbals, other musical instruments. It was a joyful time, and the bride heard the wedding procession coming, and she was close to getting ready, but not, you know, totally ready, and so she used those last few minutes along with her bridesmaids to get everything ready, and then they made their way to the, to the wedding ceremony, and uh, it was a wonderful time, 
And that's exemplified even today by if you've been to a, to a Jewish wedding under the gazebo, and we'll talk about that more later on. And then after the glass was smashed, if you've been to a Jewish wedding, they step on the glass under the napkin, and then the honeymoon. And the bride and the groom would go away for seven days and nights. Everybody else would party. Everybody but the bride and the groom. Uh, they would party heartily, but the bride and the groom would be in the room addition onto the father's house that the groom had been building for this occasion. After the seven days, they would come out, there would be a formal introduction, and there would be more partying and more celebrating. Oh, Israel's a wonderful place to go. It's a wonderful place. There's so much celebration. And uh, this is a picture of the seven-year honeymoon period of time little spoiler alert here, we're getting to that later on, but when we will be with Jesus in heaven for seven glorious years, then we will come back with him to usher in the millennium, the thousand year period of earth where it's just going to be a perfect earth and, and Jesus is going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. We'll talk more about that. And then we'll be with him in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever and ever after that. Number nine, the pre-tribulation rapture follows the book of Revelation. It follows it chronologically. If you don't embrace this view, then you have to put chapters 4 and 5 after chapter 11 if you're a mid-tribulationist, or after 19 if you embrace a post-tribulation view. So only the pre-tribulation view follows the book of Revelation here chronologically. Number 10, Jesus warned the church at Thyatira that if they didn't repent, they would experience the Great Tribulation. We'll get to that next week, the church at Thyatira. If they didn't repent, but if you do repent, you will not experience the Tribulation. So, repent, repent, and give your life to Jesus Christ. Uh, number 12, the Bible tells us that Jesus will deliver the church from the terrors of coming judgment. And 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, and they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. He has already rescued us. Where did he rescue us? On the cross. It's not what we do. It's not how much money we give. It's not our denominational affiliation or anything else. It's what, nothing about us. It's what he has done on the cross for us. Number 13, the tribulation is unnecessary for the church. Uh, it's, the tribulation is also referred to in the Old Testament and the New Testament as the time of Jacob's trouble. And Israel, the Bible tells us, will be awakened and at last see Jesus as the Messiah. God will make himself known to them. We're going to be talking about this, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, 12,000 from each tribe, and wow, their eyes are going to be opened. They're going to be more on fire than almost any Christian today, almost, and they're going to go around the world saying, he is the Messiah, he is the Messiah. Uh, the Bible says um, in, in verse... Uh, 30 of, of Deuteronomy chapter 4, in the distant future. Now, remember Deuteronomy is way back right after Genesis. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In the distant future, when you are suffering all these things, you will finally return to the Lord your God and listen to what he tells you, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you or forget the solemn covenant he made with your ancestors. This goes way back to the early Old Testament days. Finally, 
Well, second to the last. Number 14, the book of Daniel confirms a pre-tribulation prophecy. It's clear from Daniel chapter 9, we talk, we'll, we'll talk more about this, but Daniel gave a prophecy of the 69 weeks, the time uh, between the commandment to rebuild the temple, that was given in the year 445 by King Artaxerxes, and the coming of the Messiah, which we talked about. And that was fulfilled perfectly on Palm Sunday to the day when Jesus came back to Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. We call that Palm Sunday. To the exact day Jesus prophesied this. Um, and yet that was only 69 weeks. A week in Daniel's prophecy uh, corresponds to uh, 69 years. But there's one more year, the 70th year, a period of seven years, and that's the last week, the period of seven years known as the tribulation. The 70 weeks of Daniel referred to Israel, seven years for each one of the 69 weeks. Uh, the church wasn't present during those first 69 weeks. That was before Jesus came. That was before the church. The 70th week doesn't begin until after the church is raptured. Daniel's prophecy does not pertain to believers does not pertain to the church, but just to Israel. So it makes perfect sense. Finally, number 15, the church is never mentioned in the Bible during the events of the tribulation. Never, ever, ever do we see any hint of the church, never any mention during the tribulation. Oh my goodness, my time is up. We didn't finish the notes. Would you like to take the notes home and read them though? Okay, take them home and read them. We'll pick up next week where we left off, the events of the rapture, and I would like you to pay particular uh, attention to angels, because we find uh, the angel there in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse, uh, verse, uh, verse 1, and that got me going on a study of angels, <laughs> and you have a whole lot of verses there, a whole bunch about angels, including guardian angels and all kinds of things about angels. So uh, you'll enjoy, I think, reviewing over that. I've given you the, uh, the, the scripture to study. And uh, then um, next week, we'll uh, begin chapter 2 after we finish this uh, chapter 1 and uh, talk about the seven churches of Revelation. I didn't have any time to collect questions tonight, but if you turn your questions in to Dave or Lori, Dave, Lori, raise your hands one more, please. Right there, right in the back. Or Robin, Robin's over here my beautiful bride, um, I will type them up, print them for your notes next week so you'll have the questions and the scripture reference. Is that, is that fair enough? Do we go too fast tonight? Too slow? Go too slow? Is this okay? So we're going to cover every verse in Revelation. A lot of tonight was an introduction going through a lot of terms. Go back and read that. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we've had this exact Time, now 60 minutes exactly, to just introduce Revelation and the study that we're going to be enjoying so much as we go through this book for the next several weeks. I pray your blessing, Lord, upon each family represented here. Uh, oh, Lord, these are tough times. Uh, and, and I pray, Father, that you would just uh, give those that are here tonight, a word of encouragement, whether it's reading the Bible out loud or the 15 reasons why it, it seems quite clear that we will not go through the tribulation, 
whatever it is, by your Holy Spirit, Father. I pray that every family represented here tonight, every individual will just sense maybe the presence of their guardian angel. And uh, most of all, your love, your grace, your mercy. I ask your blessing upon them in Jesus' name. Amen.